Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 53, It's the Cigars You Smoke That Will Kill You, where we'll be looking at Chapters 110 and 111 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of Trial by Combat. Explain the title. I had to come up with something, and that's all that was stuck in my head. I mean, sure. If I have to explain the joke, it's not a very good joke. Well, I don't know the reference for the joke. The right people will. I'm not the right people? Not for this particular joke, but... Oh, come on. Explaining a joke is always making it funnier. We have this debate a lot. I'm joking. I would have said something along the lines of, if a tree falls in the forest, does it still cut you? But... (laughs) Well, you can put that one in there if you so desire, but... It won't match the actual episode, then. Well, maybe that's part of the joy. We're starting this off on a tear. (laughs) Welcome to 2024, people. Welcome to the last third-ish of the book. Do you think we'll make it to the end? Oh, I think so. But I mean before the end of the year? Yeah. Not sure. Maybe we will. Maybe that's our goal for the year, is get to the end of the book by the end of the year. But then what will we talk about? Well, we'll have to figure that out now, won't we? We will. Hey, to the hundred or so, maybe a few more listeners, give us some suggestions. Anyway, before we begin in earnest, let's explain the pod for those who are new here. Each week, we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will then share a recommended thing of the week and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. We have forgotten, again, to put Fernemos on the list. That's also a thing we'll be talking about. All right. And before we begin in earnest, no, I already said that. I'm leaving all this in. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Da Books. Though, Pat, if you are listening and you'd like us to be affiliated with you, operators are standing by. Why is that still written in here? Anyway, second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novels and short stories and novellas, whatever I can't read, in the continuity. Or B, you are one of those weird folks that doesn't mind having crucial plot points from the future revealed to you ahead of time like some sort of mad fortune teller. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and to the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Also, one last thing, kicking people in the slushies is not a Volathani. <laughs> there are many things that aren't, and that is one of those. So... I picked Trial by Combat for our theme this week because this portion of the book is sort of a pastiche of all of these sort of cliched martial arts stories that you see where an outsider joins a reclusive monastery and learns their ways. And so it follows a lot of those beats. Last Samurai, anyone? Yeah, Last Samurai. I was also thinking of how G.I. Joe's whole Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow Saga You've also got the whole story of Kane from Kung Fu. All of these have that feel to it, where you have someone who's not of the community brought into that community from the outside. And so it has that outsider's view of a very insular group. Like I said, this isn't necessarily a beat for beat thing, but it has a lot of those elements that you recognize from a lot of Wuxia movies, for instance. We'll start off here with 
Foth's first introduction to the Society of Edemre in chapter 110, Beauty and Branch. We get our first sort of taste of Hert, which is the principal town. I thought it was kind of interesting seeing sort of the way geography shapes society and shapes the way the town is constructed. So instead of having just a central street with buildings built up on either side of it, all of the buildings are carved into the side of the hills, kind of like Hobbiton. They use what's available to them. They don't make an attempt to make the land change for them. They also don't inflict their own will upon the landscape. I want to stick a pin on that because I think that's a really astute observation. When we get further on with Quoth's first test, I think that's going to come into play. The other thing to note is how often wind is brought into this conversation. Quoth doesn't make a connection, which is weird because he overthinks so much, but he doesn't make a connection to the wind being such a prevalent force in Ademre, in Hert. But part of the reason why Hert is built into the landscape instead of onto the landscape is because there are winds that rip through the town, through the area that would just tear roofs off of homes if they were built in what Quoth sees as a conventional way. Yeah. I think also you brought up that overthinking element. And this entire journey is really about Quoth's journey to not overthinking. There is a point at which Quoth stops himself from overthinking specifically. And I think it's a very interesting, I don't want to say journey, I don't want to say headspace, but kind of a mix between the two. I think it's an important thing. And I think it's an ongoing challenge for all of us. So while Tempe goes to consult with the local authorities who Quoth doesn't know yet. I don't like the term local authorities. That doesn't sound right. It's more the ostensible leadership of Hert, of Ademre, in a way that is much less academic than obviously the university and much less law enforcement than most towns and much less bureaucracy and nobility than Ventus. Ademre has its own sense of hierarchy, but it's also not quite a flat structure, but more egalitarian. I think egalitarian is probably the right word. So while Quoth is kind of just out here waiting, he strikes up a conversation with an old lady who passes by, or more accurately, she strikes up a conversation with him. There's something tickling the back of my head about this being familiar in like a foundational cartoon almost, or a, a movie or something, like an older person taking something from the protagonist or... It's just there's something that is tickling my head that's similar. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is because this also hits the martial arts story archetypes very strongly, which is the unassuming martial arts master. Like Shan is fundamentally a master of the arts of the Demre, the Adem martial arts. She's probably forgotten more about Lothani than most people have ever learned. She's clearly seen it all, but she doesn't carry herself in that sort of authoritative, imposing way. She carries herself like a, a little old lady who just wants to chat with the new person. 
it's kind of interesting seeing Quoth try to make small talk where he uses, that's a beautiful wall. I took that a little bit differently. He's trying to both appear stoic and of Lilithani and the way he's expected to behave in this new society, which is to say, like the people in the society and be patient. Like he's performing patience, but a little bit of him can't continue to perform patience. He gets itchy and he has to go examine something or learn something or entertain himself somehow. And so something catches his eye and he's confused and curious, which is the wall that is built in a way that needs no mortar. And he's caught staring at what is an engineering marvel to him and has to explain himself with less words, less vocabulary than maybe he has in his native language and more than he wants to have here. He's put in an awkward spot, certainly. And I think he's doing his best. But it is sort of like, well, what else is there to look at, right? You're kind of standing here in a fairly blank town square, such as it is. And this is the only really human feature. So it's what stands out from the landscape. So you start looking at it. I've done that where I have to look somewhere. So I'm just looking at a thing. But he approaches it with curiosity. I'm not seeing it be abnegation or by accident or because it's the only thing that's there, there is something about it that catches his eye and actually makes him curious and want to dig in. I think it's both. I think his curiosity is piqued because he doesn't have anything actively grasping onto it. Kvothe has a mind that goes looking for mysteries. And sometimes I think where none are readily apparent, he goes digging. But then there's an interesting conversation here where he says this is a beautiful wall. And his conversation partner asks, what do you mean by that? It's a wall. Oh, yeah. Spoilers. You already said it was Shayan. Shayan says, what do you mean it's beautiful? I don't know. I think that architecture and engineering and different methods of building or making something that is a utility, I think that that can be beautiful. I don't disagree with you, and I don't think Shan does either. I think what she is doing here, this whole thing is a test. Obviously. And so what she is doing is testing to see, is he someone who actually cares about something being beautiful, or is he just trying to be pleasant? I think that that's there. I think there's also a test of will he continue or stick to his convictions? Will he back down because he's embarrassed? Because he said something weird? How will he react when pressed on this? I think there's also an element of a Socratic dialogue here. One thing that I notice about Shan is she makes her point not by making statements, but by asking questions. Everything that Kvothe says, she responds to with a question. Like she doesn't say, oh, that's not beautiful. It's functional. And then Kvothe is like, well, maybe beauty can lie in function, something that does what it's designed to do in an elegant fashion. Like we think about some of the artifice that he has been able to put together, like the arrow catch, for instance, which performs with admirable elegance. You know, these things that do what they do in ways that are novel and clever and efficient, 
you know, we think about classic architecture that really stands the test of time, it's stuff that lasts and there's something elegant to it. There's something refined to it. There's maybe an element of minimalism almost. Like everything that is there is serving a purpose with minimal extra embroidery. And so, yeah, I think he can see some beauty there. And I think he also hits on this element where she says this yellow hat that she has is very warm. Does that make it beautiful? And he goes, no, that is not the exchange. Oh, That isn't how that went down. How it went down is way better. The way that that happened is she asked, what of my hat? Is it beautiful because it is used? Because I am using it? Because it is functional? Because it has a purpose? And Kvothe being very diplomatic about this ugly yellow hat looks at her and says, it seems very warm. That's diplomacy. That is not answering the question as asked, but giving an answer. Shane's response is, she gestured small amusement and her eyes twinkled ever so slightly. It is that, and to me it is beautiful as it was made for me by my daughter's daughter. And then Quoth responds, then it is beautiful as well, which I think also speaks to the subjective nature of beauty. It is as much about the person observing it as it is about the thing itself. I'd also say that sometimes the history of an object or the, I don't know how to describe this, but so I think the best way I can explain what I'm thinking is by just telling another story. I have a friend who asked me to do a little bit of graphic design work for her and I did, and it didn't take very long. In fact, what took longer was rediscovering how to do certain things in software that has been updated like a few times over since I've worked with it in earnest. Just trying to functionally work with it took longer than actually doing the piece. And so I didn't want to charge her money for what ostensibly was less than a half an hour's worth of my time and also provided value to me because I do need to keep up with the software. But she insisted. She's like, can I give you a gift card? Can I give you some Lego? Can I give you something? And to me, it meant more to have something physical that she picked out for me, that she got me, than to have money where I would have probably purchased the exact same thing. And so I told her, there's this really cool dice tower that I really like, and I would like you to pick out a color for me between these three colors. I can't make my mind up. It's something I want. Please help. And then it arrived and it's this beautiful violet and I absolutely love it. But what makes it even nicer is that she then said that her daughter helped pick it out, helped pick the color. And it was even better. Like, I liked it. Don't get me wrong. I think that it's a nicely crafted, very beautiful, luxurious feeling dice tower. And it is better because she said that she and her daughter worked together and that her daughter pick the color. And yes, I do know her daughter too. And her daughter's an adult. <laughs> but it made me smile even more. And it makes that object itself more special than if I was to pick it off of a shelf. I think this also speaks to that subjective element where beauty is something that we bring to objects based on our subjective understanding of them. So your experience of beauty with that dice tower came because of the 
emotional element that came from your friend and her daughter. I have one more thing to mention on this. Mm. This speaks loudly and similarly to a conversation in The Lightning Tree and The Narrow Road Between Desires. Glamoury versus Grammoury and talk of how Costrel's knife is, to him, the best knife. There are lots of dice towers. In fact, I painted you a very lovely one a few years ago. It's my favorite. And I love my new one because it has that emotion tied to it. Much more than I love the one that I did for you, even though I love that one too. I think that's one of the things that Quoth puzzles out here. Beauty comes from our experience and the way we consider a thing. Beauty is as much about us as it is about the thing we are beholding. So I think that was one of those clever little conversational riddles that he had to work through that Shan was deliberately putting him through. And I think one of the reasons she chose this particular one is it's low stakes. How does this person respond in a low stakes situation? He doesn't know he's being tested. He doesn't know that what he says means anything. So he's just responding off the cuff as he would to some random stranger. He's not trying to impress someone great and powerful. Which is the whole point of this trope. Yes, the unassuming martial arts master is oftentimes trying to see how does the prospective student treat someone who doesn't have authority over them. How are they different between when somebody does and does not have authority over them? One thing I do have to mention, there are a lot of people that stare at Quoth's hair and how different he looks compared to all the sandy blonde that exists in a Demre. I want to posit something. Pat doesn't talk about things by accident. He doesn't write about things by accident. A Demray and this section of the book gets a lot of shirt because of the whole man mothers thing. And I am going to give it a lot of shirt because of the whole man mothers thing. It's dumb. I hate it. It's awful. And I hate it. But what do you want to bet that by book three, there will be at least one or maybe a few redheaded children in a Demray in Hert? Oh, there's going to be that. Yes. <laughs> The gene pool is shallow there. That is true. I mean, as it is because they don't really understand the concept of how men contribute to the genetic line. There's probably already a lot of accidental incest that happens. Which I don't like that implication, but it's more than probable. I think the only new fresh anything to the gene pool is when women go out to do fighting. And if they manage to become pregnant outside of Edemre. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I don't like it. Me either. Let's move on. Fair enough. We haven't even gotten to that part of the book. We'll have lots more to say then. Yeah. If anyone wants to have this discussion with us, we do have our Discord. Also, that's one of those things that I haven't seen really brought up on the subreddit. Though I'm not that active. However, if anyone would like to, you know, share about the podcast or if you like us or any of that stuff with a group of people who have reinvigorated a subreddit because there's a new book, I'm just saying sharing our content would be nice and helpful. We like talking with people. So Quoth at first is like, well, look, I can't really go with you 
because I'm waiting for someone in there. They're expecting me when they get out. And Shane goes, oh, don't worry about it. They'll be in there for a long time. (laughs) You're stuck being bored out of your mind. The least you can do is come talk to an old lady. And Quoth pretty quickly remembers from his lessons as a child, when someone offers you hospitality, don't turn them down. The exact wording is, I couldn't think of a graceful way of disengaging myself without seeming terribly impolite. Every culture is different, but one thing is always true. The surest way to give offense is to refuse the hospitality of your host. Yeah, if someone makes an offer, accept it graciously, regardless of where it is. The nature of that offer may differ. The exact way that that offer is broached may differ, but if the offer is made, take it in good faith and respond in kind. One thing to note here, he doesn't protest when his loot is taken. That's growth. Or it's regression because of just how ingrained the be polite directive has seeped into him. Or what I think is actually true. He trusts the Adem because he trusts Tempe. I think that's a large part of it. And I think that also represents growth. Being able to grow to the point where he's able to trust Tempe is not something that he's really been able to do with anybody. If we look at it, he doesn't trust Will and Sim to the same degree. No, he also doesn't respect them to the same degree. As in, hi, I'm still alive, would be nice. So Shayan, the old lady, walks away and kind of gives Quoth no choice but to follow after her. And I think that there's something here that emphasizes the point of the yellow hat part. You have the gift of saying without saying. You have the gift of talking about something and making sure that you are putting the correct perception into somebody else's head, essentially. Like something that I try to do and I don't always succeed at is when talk about somebody starts turning negative is to at least point out the good in them to avoid just shirt talking people. As soon as things start getting into like that spiral of negativity, I try to find something nice to say about them. Or I try to couch the things I find negative within things that I don't, or at least my understanding of why they are what they are. But she's very affectionate about all of this. Like she's very kind. She tests him a little bit more about beauty. Please explain to me why something is beautiful. Please explain to me why this brook is beautiful. Please explain to me why that tree over there is beautiful. Have you ever heard of Latanta? And Quoth thinks about it and says, no, but I might not know the word. And she brings him into view of the sword tree, at which point I'm going to point out that in this story, a lot of trees just exist to hurt people. Yeah, between the tree that the Cathay is in and then The tree that fell down in front of the wagon that forced the caravan of Arladin to stop for the night and be massacred by the Chandrian. And then you've also got the lightning tree. You've got the sword tree. Trees are bad news here. (laughs) Trees exist to hurt people. And Quoth, ever curious, says, I would enjoy seeing it more closely. And Shayan is like, nah, nope, not allowed. No one does that. Nope, mm -mm, no. You're not ready. Absolutely, you're not ready. And then he just takes a long, long time in silence. And it's not awkward. 
It's just thoughtful. And he answers simply, yes, as in, yes, it is beautiful. Why did it take you so long to decide? I was considering the reason for its beauty. And then he does something I think is really smart. And he asks Shayan, why do you think it's beautiful? And she answers, I just think it is. That's a valid reason. It is a valid reason to just think something is pretty. It is a valid thing to just like things. Why do I have so many dice? Because they're pretty, because I like them. Some might say, why do you waste your money on this thing? Why do you have so much Lego? Why are you spending so much money on these things that are only valuable as a commodity? And I don't think that they are. I think that they bring me joy. And I think that to me, their value and their worth comes from the joy that I have had building, but also just their form once they're built. Sometimes also the joy comes from just thinking about how I would build something, how I would use what's there to make something new. I think ultimately when it comes to philosophical questions of aesthetics, both thoughtful and categorical responses can be valid. And also so can just gut level, I like it, also valid. You don't have to always have a reason why. There doesn't have to be a massive emotional reason for you to like something. You just can like it. And I think this is also that lesson about overthinking in action. Because her next questions are about the Lithani, which is all about action and speaking sincerely from your gut, so to speak. Specifically, she asks, do you know of the Ketan? And Kvothe is overthinking his answer. He is trying to figure out what the right answer is instead of just giving the answer that is. And that's part of the test, right? He's figured out by now that she is Shayan, and his answers become less free. Much more circumspect. Much more weighted and much more considered. Much more fraught. He's walking on eggshells now because he realizes these things have consequence. Now, I'm also going to say that Given where Kvoth is in his journey, that is kind of to be expected. Because if we go back to those martial arts tropes, the whole point of getting the black belt or anything like that, of any kind of achievement is just to say, okay, you have learned enough now that you are ready to actually be a student again. Which means that it's not that he has demonstrated mastery. He's demonstrated that one, he knows enough to understand what he has to learn. And two, he doesn't know it yet. Like it would be unthinkable for him to think that he has figured everything out now. And I think what we're really seeing him express is how to say, I haven't learned that yet. This is new to me. I'm not someone who knows a lot about the Lithani. I'm just trying to do my best. <laughs> but to my point of things being couched and fraught and him trying to answer correctly. He also answers in ways that he hopes will not reflect badly on Tempe. Whereas before it didn't, it wasn't a consideration. I almost said it didn't matter, but it did matter. It didn't seem to be at stake. Yes. It's the difference between knowing how to walk and then being asked to explain how to walk. <laughs> or play quap. I, I don't even remember that one, but... You don't remember Quop? It's literally trying to make a ragdoll physics body walk using QWOP. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. On a keyboard. Yes. That's 
that's where he's at. It's, yes. Uh, he's basically had all of these lessons. He's gotten okay. And suddenly he's like, oh, crap, I have to explain how to walk again. <laughs> so cue fighting montage. Show me what you've learned. And he gets his Zash kicked. Yeah, she tosses him around like a rag doll. Speaking of, you can, though, tell a huge difference between the two fighters in this. We've got Shayan, who is in this lopsided, sunny yellow hat that Quoth says, she doesn't look intimidating. I'm pretty sure I can take her. And then you've got Quoth, who is this stubborn teenager who thinks he knows what he's doing, but kind of knows that he doesn't, but kind of thinks that he does. I think part of it is what Shan is also testing is she knows that she outmatches him pretty easily. Oh, yeah. And Quoth learns pretty quickly that that's the case as well. He also knows that he has to try. And I think that's what she's trying to see if he'll do because she has humiliated him multiple times over. I take this a little bit differently. I think he should have just stepped out of the way. I think what she's actually wanting to do is to see, okay, what kind of spirit do you have? You know, what sort of person are you? How resourceful are you? Are you someone who, even when you know that the odds are way against you, are you still going to try? Are you still going to make an effort? I think that initiating combat is not of the Lothani. And I think that he would have demonstrated a greater understanding of Lothani if he hadn't fought, like moved out of the way. If he had not engaged in combat and given her the chance to say, good, now actually do this with me. I'm going to disagree with you because, again, we have to look back to the martial arts pastiche here. The whole point here is she is trying to get him to react, to see how he reacts when fighting, not thinking. Because remember, the whole point of the Lithani is to test your reactions. And it's about how you react in a circumstance when you don't have time to think. So Foth is trying everything he knows. That's what he's got in his toolbox. That's what he's practiced so far. Remember, he's only really been practicing this for about a month. True. I don't think that stepping out of the way is not a reaction, though. I think it is a reaction, and I do think it tells you something about who he is, just to not engage. That might be one way to respond of the Lothani. But remember, Lothani is not necessarily about having one thing that is always true in all situations. It has to be what is true of Quoth. And I think the Quoth's reactions here are of the Lothani for him because they are about who he is. This whole test isn't about revealing, do you know the one true way? It's, do you know your way? I think that as he grows, maybe he would turn to someone who gets out of the way. That's not him though right now at the instant in this story. And I think he responded according to his nature, which if we go back to the conversations about beauty, things behaving according to their nature is something that is beautiful. So water is beautiful because it moves. Stone is beautiful because it doesn't. Quoth is beautiful because of who he is, of how he responds to adversity in that unique way of his. Is the scorpion beautiful because it succumbs to its nature? According to this definition, yes. Fair enough. But I think what we also get here is just Quoth coming to understand truly 
how much he has to learn. He knew he had a lot to learn, and now he gets the full scope of it. There is definitely something in the trope about getting knocked down to show or force humility. And then we also get a more detailed understanding of why the tree is foreboden. Shayan, after kicking Quoth's ash, picks up a leaf and hands it to him, and it immediately cuts him. Yeah, it's basically like Devil's Club. And that is enough to teach him that if the wind is high, that tree is going to shred people. It, no. <laughs> no, no, no. And Shayan goes through, again, with the same kind of trope of the wise person, asking where the weak point of the tree is. If you were to attack this tree, what would you do? Would you strike the root? No, too strong. Would you strike the leaf? No, too fast. Where then? And he answers the branch, at which point she makes the analogy of when I am in this fighting stance, I am planted like the roots of the tree. My feet are planted. Attacking my feet? No. My hand freely moves. No point in attacking my hand. But to attack the branch is to find the balance points, to find the places where it is actually effective to fight, to push, to pull, to move. You find the place to spend your strength or it is wasted. Wasting strength is not of the Willithani. I think that also comes back to finding beauty in simplicity. That comes back to finding that almost minimalist aesthetic to it. There are multiple instances of Shayan taking a single perfect step, getting her balance back that way, moving out of the way in just one step making herself stronger with the least amount of effort. And not only that, she has perfect control to the point where even as she's doing all of these powerful maneuvers, she does them with such grace and control that she doesn't hurt Quoth at all. And he knows that if she wanted to, she would wreck him. Like she could break his body in an instant if that was her goal. The fact that she has not hurt him is a testament to the amount of precision and control that she has. Although he does take credit for the fact that Tempe has shown him how to fall. And there's some of that too. I think she trusts that he at least knows how to fall without being a complete idiot about it. Yeah. Otherwise, Tempe wouldn't have brought him here. With that, Shayan basically says that Tempe has both taught Quoth and also left him ignorant of a lot. And Quoth realizes that he's going to have a lot to learn and also unlearn because Tempe is fundamentally someone who's never taught before. I'd say that it's also very similar to, quote, self-taught guitarists who learn from YouTube, who don't learn from an actual real life instructor, who don't learn from someone who is able to give feedback and make the minute changes that you need to make success happen. And everything is a struggle for the person who is self-taught because thinking you have an understanding of something and actually having an understanding of something are completely different things. Absolutely. So that brings us to chapter 111, A Liar and a Thief. After that sparring session, Shan and Kvoth return to Tempe. And here Shan kind of lays into Tempe. She's displeased with the choices that he's made, specifically to train Kvoth. Like, it's arrogant for Tempe to think that he can be a teacher since he's only moderately okay at 
the practice of the Ketan by the ADEM standards. It's arrogant for him to think that he can train Kvothe as well as Shan herself can. Now she's got to figure out what she's going to do with these two because it's a mess. So then she brings in Carceret, who is sort of the walking martial arts story trope, the sort of hidebound traditionalist who is displeased that the outsider is present. I would say elitist. Oftentimes there's an element of elitism, someone who rejects the outside world, someone who is rather haughty about the knowledge that they have gained. Unwilling to share it. Right. At this point, she takes Tempe and Carceret behind closed doors and they talk for hours while Kvothe is left in the hallway, pretty much just not doing anything other than knowing that he is being stared at for the red hair. I also think that he feels more than a little bit of guilt for the trials that Tempe is having to go through because he knows that all he had to do was just not ask Tempe any questions about the K-10 or any of his practices and Tempe wouldn't be having these problems. Quoth has made a problem of himself for Tempe. But I think to not ask questions would also be against Quoth's nature. Yeah, I think it's the sort of thing where he recognizes that the answers that he has gotten have placed his friend in a difficult position and he accepts the responsibility for that. Kvothe could no more not ask those questions than just go through a day without breathing. He is the scorpion and Tempe is the fox. And at the same time, he can accept responsibility for that and understand that his friend's plight, he bears responsibility for some of that. And if they drown, they drown together. Yep. Once Kvothe is let inside, Shan spends a bit of time questioning him. So we start with, how many have you killed? Many. How many is many? In killing men, one is many. Have you killed men outside of the Lithani? Perhaps. Why do you not say yes or no? Because the Lithani has not always been clear to me. Why is that? Because the Lithani is not always clear. What makes the Lithani clear? I hesitated, though I knew it wasn't the right thing to do. The words of a teacher. Can one teach the Lithani? Perhaps. I cannot. Who knows the Lithani? And this is where he stops overthinking. He specifically says, or thinks, this wasn't going well. For the lack of any other ideas, I took a deep breath and relaxed and tipped my mind gently into spinning leaf. His answer is the windblown leaf, though he cannot honestly say what he meant by it. Where does the Lithani come from? The same place as laughing. How do you follow the Lithani? How do you follow the moon? The fact that Kvothe responds to questions with questions means there's hope for him. And it's not that he is answering dishonestly before, but now he is answering sincerely. I think the answers that he was giving when he was thinking were true, but not sincere. Once he moves into Spinning Leaf, he is responding with what his core self says, the way his mind actually works. He's responding with his sleeping mind. Then we get a little bit of Carceret as, again, that proud insider. Starts making hand gestures that mean dismissal and disgust and talking to Shayan and saying, he's at best a liar and a thief. I don't want him to learn the things that I hold dear. 
And Shan responds, identifying sort of a schism between two ways of viewing edemic thought. Or knowledge in general. There are those who might say, this one has enough. Do not teach him the Lothani because whoever has knowledge of the Lothani overcomes all things. But I am not one who would say that. I think the world would be better if more were of the Lithani. For while it brings power, the Lithani also brings wisdom in the use of power. And this is where we get this idea that the Lithani is as much about knowing when to respond in a certain way as it is knowing how to respond. I think it is this idea that it's meant to be something that tempers and strengthens your convictions and teaches you how to hold to them in the way that is going to be most effective and will actually bring about your goals and are going to have a virtuous outcome. So I think right there we see that, of course, Shan is the wise but humble master. She is not there to strictly gatekeep, though she does a little bit of gatekeeping. Her job is primarily to prime the student to learn. That little bit there where she's saying that the Lothani brings wisdom in the use of power, that's a reminder to Carceret, because pretty much anyone below Shan is still a student. And it's also a reminder to Kvoth of what's to come. I would say that Shan also still views herself as a student. Fundamentally, yes. I think Shan would probably say that everyone is a student of the Lothani. Because remember, the Lothani is not a goal, it's a path. And paths are things that you walk, and this is one you never finish walking. So after that, Shan says that Kvoth will enter the tutelage of Vachette, known as the Hammer, and Carceret and <laughs> Tempe are both like, oh, she's really tough. Carceret's happy. Tempe is not. We get the sense that Vachette is a demanding and exacting teacher. She is not someone who is going to just go easy on Kvoth. I think we have a little bit of foreknowledge since we've read this a few times. Well, I mean, they don't call her the hammer because she's so gentle. No. <laughs> the hammer will show if he is iron worth striking. He's probably also going to come home with some bruises. Some. He is just going to be a big bruise. That too. After that, they go to dinner in the sort of communal mess, which gives us an interesting peek into Adam's society. So it's, like you were saying earlier, extremely egalitarian. They all eat together at the same level. Shan, who is kind of the bigwig of the community, eats side by side with everybody else. Like she is no different from them, whether they are everyday tradespeople or mercenaries or students or anything. They all eat together. They all eat the same stuff. And it's basically a great big charcuterie board. Quoth is just now, after hours upon hours of being left alone, and then also being questioned, and then also being tested, and all of these things, finally realizing just how hungry he is. And he takes a large portion of food and eats all of it, while Tempe, who has also not eaten, is very distraught and kind of picks at his food and pretends to eat. And I'm not sure if the amount that Quoth ate would be viewed as rude or not, but no one seems to question. Some things are just passed off as barbarian. I'll also point out, Foth's a teenager. <laughs> Let's not forget that. Correct. And so the meal passes 
both knows he's being stared at and talked about. Although in this mess, in this eating hall, the volume is low because they mostly use hand talk. That's got to be a little bit eerie. Yeah, like you can hear maybe faint murmurs here and there, but nothing you can make out. All of the meaning is conveyed through gestures. And it's not in the same way that being around deaf people or people who don't speak, because sometimes deaf people do speak, but being around a whole bunch of people who are not speaking verbally, but speaking with their hands is they are talking. They're just talking low and mostly with their gestures and hand movements and, and hand speak. If you've watched any videos or been in conversation with deaf people who don't speak while they're signing, there are still mouth noises. Can't avoid it, especially when they're miming speech almost. They're not using their vocal cords, but they are still moving their mouth a bit. So you've got some pops and you've got some noises going on. So that's a completely different thing than the way that the low murmur is as described here. And there is a word that has popped up throughout the story, but is more prevalent here in Ademre. It's Sisera. A Sisera's murmuring. Sisera's, Sisera. There's different inflections depending on what we're talking about, whether it's the noise or lack of, sort of, or the sword. So then Tempe shows Quoth to the room where he's going to be staying, and Quoth finds his travel sack and his loot, but not his sword. I think it's telling because Quoth hasn't earned the right to carry a sword here. Also, not for nothing, but in comparison, that sword was crap. Yeah, it was a rod of iron, basically. Sharpened, probably. Here we also see Tempe basically says, okay, so I'm not going to be able to help you from here on out. I've been removed as your teacher. I think that there's a lot of sadness in Tempe for that. A lot of feeling of rejection for that but also that feeling of when you're told you can't socialize with someone i think there's a lot of that and there's something that i think is really important it's really basic really simple but fundamentally tempe sees quoth as a friend because for all of the trouble that quoth has brought into tempe's life for all of the complications, for all of the annoyances, for all of the trials that he's been through, Quoth is the only outsider, quote, barbarian that Tempe has met who's actually treated Tempe like a person, who has actually been willing to learn from Tempe at his own level, who's been willing to see him as more than just a curiosity, who's been willing to speak his language to him. Not only that, but take the time to learn his language. Yeah, exactly. Someone who's been willing to engage with him. Tempe, I think, feels a great deal of friendship and affection towards Quoth that goes beyond student-teacher. The way that the society of Ademre seems to be built feels a lot like a very large queer platonic relationship just amongst everybody. There's a little of that. And I also get the sense, and this may just be me reading something that isn't there, Tempe doesn't feel particularly at ease or well-loved within the society of the ADEM. I don't think any men do. And I don't think he has friends even within the ADEM. Quoth is probably the closest thing he's got to a friend, period. Maybe. 
he certainly isn't someone who makes friends easily. And, you know, this weird kid with red hair, <laughs> that's the closest friend he's ever had. Tempe also has weird interests that aren't common in his home. Yeah, we know that he's interested in music, which is a massive taboo. And again, this weird redheaded kid is also a great musician and is willing to teach him about that and share that with him. And I think, yeah, there is some genuine grief that Tempe is feeling that they're being separated, not just because he won't get to teach Kvothe, but also because he won't get to learn from him and he won't get to share companionship and fellowship with him. Like I say, it's a simple thing, but it's profound. And not knowing what else to do, Kvothe just gives him a great big hug. And that seems to make things better for Tempe. At least a little bit. I mean, it's better than they were before. A hug may not fix the core problem. And all of the problems that I may have had are still there. But now I've had a hug, which is more than I had before. <laughs> I'd say that there's almost a feeling of more than simple friendship. Both and Tempe seem to have a stronger bond built on mutual respect and caring than Kvoth has had with anyone. And it's really easy to fall into the thought that men can't simply be very close friends and tip it into there must be some sort of romance or some sort of sexual attention or both. And I think that that does this friendship a disservice. I don't think that there's that kind of feeling between the two of them. I think that they're just the camaraderie, the friendship, the love is there and doesn't have to be quote more. I agree. So with that, it's time for us to talk about our Aristotelian for Nemos of the week. Now it's been a hot minute since we've done one of these. So quick refresher, Aristotle, the philosopher says that the way we understand Practical wisdom is by looking at models in life and stories. So in today's reading, who do you think would be our model of practical wisdom? Oh, who do you think? I don't know. That's why I asked you. Uh-huh. You don't know. Obviously, Shayan. Naturally. She's the master for a reason. If for no other reason than she says a thing is beautiful because it is. Though there are lots of little nuggets of wisdom and care. You really can't have this trope without the wise person really being the wise person. The fact of the matter is, Quoth is a little hothead. And Shayan is calm and wise, affectionate when she needs to be. But also, don't mistake her softness for weakness. She's curious. She asks questions. And she will give someone the space to answer honestly, but also will leave pause long enough that a person is like, but I don't know, maybe I don't, and they get flustered on their own behalf instead of, you know, someone who just can exist quietly and sure about their answers. She's the sort of person who lets people bring their whole selves to the table for good and ill. And she accepts them pretty radically, I would say. Throughout all of this, she never really speaks disapprovingly of Kvothe. She recognizes his gifts for what they are and simply says, you have these things. You can say things without saying them, which is not inherently a bad thing. Diplomacy is a good thing for all that it's worth. You know, we, we can say, oh, that's being diplomatic, but diplomacy is what solves conflicts. And that's not a bad thing. 
she is there to take an honest assessment of Quoth as he is, not as he wants to be. And I think she finds that there is something worth teaching, that he has stuff to learn and that it can be taught. She teaches with grace and also with accountability. When Quoth makes a mistake, she tells Quoth where there are mistakes, but she also doesn't treat these as things that can't be corrected. When she sees a mistake in his form, she says, ah, you can fix that. Do this a little bit differently. Try this. And sure enough, it works. She lets Quoth learn while also showing, yes, there are things that need to be corrected, things that he's going to need to grow on, things that he's going to need to work on. You don't come to a teacher because you've got everything figured out and you're good at everything. You come to a teacher because you need to learn still. Although sometimes, especially young people, do approach a new teacher with the idea that I need to impress you or I already have all of this information. You just need to be there to confirm it. Right. And I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, this is a new teacher. I need to show them what I can do best. I'm going to do my best, not so much that I can impress them, but so that they can see where I am at and take an honest assessment of my abilities and then tailor the lesson plan accordingly. And then sometimes you have the 18-year-old student come in and say, well, I'm already a writer. I just need you to tell me how great I am at this. I just need you to rubber stamp my papers so that I can graduate with a perfect GPA and then get my dream job. Okay. Whatever you say, kid. Yeah. No edits needed. This is perfect. And then they get offended when you try to help them. And to Quoth's credit, he takes all of her lessons in the spirit they're offered. He takes them with the appropriate humility. He does try his best, not because he thinks that he is so good, but because he wants to, one, he does care about doing his best. Two, he also wants to make sure that he's not doing this just for him. He's doing this also because he knows it will reflect on Tempe and he wants to reflect positively. So I'd say that, yeah, Shan is pretty good at drawing Quoth's true self out because she creates that safe space for him. And we get to see Quoth for all of his good and ill. And she does too and accepts it. So I think that's a good pick. Thank you. In other returning segments from a long hiatus, it's thing of the hiatus, week. Hiatus, hiatus? They're both accurate. It's a tomato, tomato thing. Okay. It's my turn this week for thing of the week. And so it's been a while since we've done these. So I thought I'd recommend what ended up being my favorite movie of the past year. We don't go to too many movies in person because of gesturing vaguely at the universe. But there were a few that we made a point of going to our local theater to see. And there was one that really stuck with me all the way through it. It was heartfelt, it was touching, it was tragic, it was romantic, and it had Godzilla in it. That's pretty much the recipe for a perfect movie for me, so I'm of course talking about Godzilla Minus One. So good! Ah, so good! This reimagining of the classic kaiju takes the King of the Monsters back to his post-World War II roots and serves as a parable about the destructive forces unleashed by war and the massive human costs that come with it. As all good movies do, Godzilla Minus One starts by making you care about its human characters. The protagonist is a Japanese pilot named Koichi Shikishima, who fakes a mechanical failure to escape having to participate in a kamikaze raid, only to land at an airstrip just before it's wiped out by a fledgling Godzilla. We then follow Shikishima as he returns to Japan following the nuclear desolation of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the firebombing of Tokyo. So as the movie progresses, we see Shikishima and his neighbors and co-workers 
slowly rebuild their lives as Tokyo gradually rises from the literal ashes. Uh, in parallel, U.S. nuclear testing at the Bikini Atoll reawakens and mutates Godzilla, empowering the beast with an atomic heat breath and a Wolverine-like healing factor. So when Godzilla makes landfall in Japan, naturally his path converges with the life Shikishima and his community have built for themselves. What follows is Shikishima and company reckoning with the follies of imperialism and militarism while trying to find another way to fend off an existential threat to their lives. While the action sequences are tense and horrifying in ways that one would expect from a good monster movie, Godzilla Minus One elevates the matter by building a profoundly humanist story centered around the drama of just mundane day-to-day -day lives. This emotional core propels the narrative even more than the legendary kaiju and provides the emotional stakes for the rampaging beast's destruction. This one is worth catching in theaters if possible. If it's still playing in a theater near you, that's the ideal way to see it. But I think it's going to stand up pretty nicely to home viewing as well. It was just so good. I loved it. I was just absolutely blown away by it. I was thinking a lot about it. And like I say, I wasn't even thinking about Godzilla. I was thinking about what is this saying about how we respond to emergencies as a society? How do we band together when the authorities aren't telling us what to do? How do we respond to things with more than just simply blow the thing up? You know, how do we employ creativity in problem solving? Like, I think this is just a legit good movie, period. That it has Godzilla in it is just a bonus. There's a part about this that really stuck with me. How society expects a sacrifice and how the answer was in defying that societal expectation. Right. I think that idea that you're going to make a martyr of yourself or that you have to do that and that there's something noble about martyring yourself for a cause when maybe the most noble thing you can do is live for it. And it's not about Shikishima living without attachments to the community around him, but rather finding strength in those attachments. He builds a family. He has a found family of people that care for one another and that enjoy one another. They take joy in their lives, their successes, and they find comfort in one another when they fail. It's very much a rejection of that sort of stoic, stand alone against all odds or whatever. Well, sometimes you may have to stand alone, but you carry your people with you in your heart, and it's those connections to them that bring strength. Yeah, it's a really powerful movie. The other thing that you got to say is the effects look really good for what they are. <laughs> Godzilla definitely does not look like this immaculate, perfect thing. Honestly, I thought that Godzilla looked a little goofy. But that's kind of the point. Like, he's a little uncanny. He's a little strange. He's monstrous. Yes. Speaking, though, of Godzilla, I'm going to piggyback onto this. If you have Apple TV+, Plus, whatever the heck they call it, watch Monarch Legacy of Monsters. I until December, had not willingly watched or retained any Godzilla, King Kong, anything to do with the MonsterVerse, nothing. Like, I know the names, like Ghidorah, and I know some of the monsters. I did not know all of them were actually connected into the same universe, or that they were Titans, or any of this other stuff. Like, that's not, no. I knew that there was Godzilla, Mechagodzilla, King Kong. I've technically watched the movie that is recent that has all three of those in it and I didn't retain hardly anything 
except for like the hollow earth stuff a little bit. And I was just like, eh. <laughs> and then Will's like, do you want to watch this? And I'm like, not really. Kurt Russell and Wyatt Russell are in it. Okay, that, okay, cool, whatever. I started watching it and I'm like, actually interesting. Once again, the things that are most interesting are the human connections and the human relationships. And yes, I've watched about half of the Godzilla movie that Brian Cranston and uh, uh, Scarlet Witch and, and Quicksilver are in. Do you want me to tell you who they are? No. Okay, uh, we'll leave that in. That's fine. Um, Elizabeth Olsen and I don't know the other dude's name. Aaron Taylor Johnson. Thank you. But we only stopped watching that because we fell asleep because it was late and we're people that get woken up constantly at around four o'clock in the morning by our needy cat. But all that being said, I've actually enjoyed Godzilla content now. And honestly, like though they're completely different universes, the Godzilla Minus One, so good. Such an amazing, awesome film to watch. And we watched it right after or the day after we went to go see The Boy and the Heron. Also really good. Also really good. Yeah. One of the most fun little factoids about the Monarch Legacy of Monsters show is, one, it's written by our local hometown author, Matt Fraction. And one of the things that he has done with his kid is he's made it an allowance chore for his kid to come up with random cool animals that could then be mashed up to make monsters. And I think we saw a few of those in the last episode, which was great. It's pretty fun. Yeah. So with that, it's time for us to share our seven words. You have the words from the books this week? I do. So there are a number of them. Not many of them are great. There's things like what Tempe has done is not good. And it seems very warm, I said carefully. There are a couple that are a little bit better, and I like them. Perhaps a thing gains beauty being used. There's also the funny, what do you think of our wall? I like wasting strength is not of the Lothani. I think there was another one at least. Ah, there's also, instead I gave him a comforting hug, which to be fair is only part of a sentence. Yeah, so ultimately I think the one that I am going to choose as my seven words from the book this time around is wasting strength is not of the Lothani. I think that's a good one. So I had seven words from life and mine come from the D&D player slash comedian Brian Murph Murphy. Help me save my marriage, Tom Thumb. <laughs> Not too many spoilers, but it comes from the campaign Never After, which is ostensibly the horror season of Dimension 20. Although I would counter that with Burrow's end being way more horrifying. But it is the creepiest fork season about fairy tales. And it was pretty near the end. I think it was in the last or the second to last. Uh, it was, I think, third to last. Close enough. But we are finally all caught up right before, like this is being recorded right now, right before Fantasy High Junior Year comes out. And oh my goodness. <laughs> Are we excited to actually be caught up? But also a little sad because we spent the last year watching tons of Dimension 20. 
It's been one of our consistent joys. Intrepid hero seasons are always highlights. Can't go wrong with any of them. And the side quests are also a lot of fun. But yeah, gotta love it when Murph commits to a bit like this. Oh, man. He had some definite commit to a bit moments in the season that bit him in the ash. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. And thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 112 and 113 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of being knocked down a few pegs. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination such as it is, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, or, you know, share us. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Oh, sun, it burns. Want me to go fix that? I would like you to go turn off the sun, please. Yes. All right, hang on. Or just put down the blinds.